Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is it right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sure. Let's go again. Perfect. COVID-19 is the biggest pandemic facing humanity in more than a century. One year in, and we are still looking for the light at the end of the tunnel. Models and data have played a very crucial role in this response. In this special podcast series, we'll be talking to our fellow researchers from NSAC at the Biocomplexity Institute, University of Virginia. The team has been tirelessly supporting COVID-19 response in the U.S. at the local, state, and federal levels. In this episode, we'll be talking to Dr. Sachla Marate and Mark Orr about the interplay of human behavior and economics during pandemics. Hi, I'm Srini Venkatramanan. And I'm Erin Raymond. Let's go talk to the COVID chaser. I'm Ashla Murati. I'm a professor here at the Biocomplexity Institute at University of Virginia. I have a joint appointment um, as a faculty in the uh, in the Department of Public Health in the School of Medicine at UVA as well. I've been at UVA since 2018, October. Before that, I was at Virginia Tech and before that at Los Alamos National Lab, where I worked with many of the people on this team. So we've been working together for over two decades now. Um, My work has been uh, in computational economics and agent-based modeling and simulation of social systems and social epidemiology. Um, Lately, I've been focusing on understanding the social aspects of infectious diseases, like disparities in disease outcomes, economic outcomes, differences in compliance behaviors across demographics, fairness, efficiency of vaccine allocation strategies. Hi, Mark Orr. I'm a psychologist, and I've been with the Institute for um, seven years, since 2014. I came from a public health background and a psychology background, and my main uh, interest is in building computational models of psychologically relevant processes and, and potentially the associations with behavior in the context of larger scale social simulations. Uh, so I think, yeah, it was a, a interesting choice for us. Like we were trying to see like, how should we talk about behavior and economics separately because they're two different things if you look at it one way. But uh, I think a lot of the behavior has been influenced by economic choices and trade off between economic choices and epidemiology, but also a lot of the tools that get used in, in terms of decision making uh, and how people make these decisions at individual or population level seem to interact. So that's why like, we wanted to just get you both together to talk about those. So maybe uh, you could give us an idea of like, uh, how, how did you get involved in this COVID response and like, uh, in general, like, what kind of tools have you uh, uh, leveraged from your past work and also developed on over the past year? So, um, so I have been doing agent-based modeling and simulation of complex systems um, for a while. And um, one of the things I've been studying is infectious diseases. Um, most of the work has been on influenza so far. So for me, to, when COVID-19 hit, it was kind of natural to extend the research that was being done for influenza and actually more recently measles uh, to COVID-19 because many of the tools, um, models could be leveraged to extend 
to COVID-19, you know, directly, like flu model could be directly extended um, with, you know, some variations to it. And the infrastructure, like social network um, on which the disease spreads, um, that was common across all infectious diseases. So, um, so it was kind of a natural transition. Another reason to get involved was we had requests from federal state agencies um, to help with the response effort and um, funding from NIH um, was received as an extension of the work that was done for influenza and measles. So all that kind of facilitated the work uh, for COVID-19. For me, the um, right when COVID hit, I was working on a different topic. For a couple of years, for about three years, and we had a team together that um, was addressing population level psychology in a sense. <clears throat> so building simulations that are to some degree psychologically valid, meaning you have agents that represent something from psychology and then they're interacting in systems. We were focusing on, on information systems, so Twitter, for example, and changes in those. So... Prior to that, I used to do public health work and we were building agent-based models of obesity behavior and also trying to bring in the psychology of it, but we weren't that uh, far along at that point. Um, but that was, you know, seven or eight years ago. My focus in public health was on, you know, social disparities in non-infectious disease in particular. So obesity, uh, alcoholism, uh, sexual risk in adolescence and those kind of things. So this was, um, when COVID hit, we weren't really prepared in a sense, because our lenses with this team I was working with were really focused on social media and, and mainly defense kinds of things. Um, but we right away we thought, well, you know, we have this set of technologies that are used for looking at information flow. Um, why can't we use those to look at COVID? So we wrote uh, a couple of federal grants and received funding from a, a couple of, from the ones we, we applied to to basically take our technology of simulation and integrate it with a, a larger kind of natural language component and see if we can make sense of the information space from the perspective of simulation of psychology and you know sociological kinds of things. So we started working on that. We were a little late because we had to wait for the funding to come in. So we didn't really get a chance until um, October or so, November. So we're just hitting the ground, you know, a couple months now. Um, but it's really, it's fun to be back into the epidemiological space. That's for sure. Yeah, it seems to flow pretty naturally from, from all of that, for sure. Um, what would you say have been some of the, the high points and the low points of the last year in, in your research or in your work-life balance or in the team or, what, or any of those things? Those are lots of questions. Uh, <laughs> I know, but so from you can you can come at it from whatever side you want. So that's I'm giving you that option. Right, right. So I think the the high is that the high point is that the you know the work was acknowledged by uh, both state and federal agencies and appreciated. So it's good to be a part of the solution, you know, rather than part of the problem. <laughs> Um, so that was, I think, um, so that was, that was good. And low, I mean, the way I, I feel low, and it's not one low, it's just, 
every time a new variant hits, it seems like, you know, so we take one step forward and two steps backward, and it's not clear how efficacious, you know, any of the vaccines are going to be as, you know, new variants are encountered every day. So, so that just adds to the uncertainty of everything that is being done on the ground to, to overcome this uh, pandemic. Um, in terms of work, I think, um, so we've been able to make steady progress in the work in last one year. Um, one I would say is where we were able to, to tie the COVID-19 epidemiological model to the economic model and actually understand sector-wise economic impact based on which sector was hit how much by the disease. Uh, which further depended on the counterfactual scenarios that were under consideration. So um, if under a scenario, um, a scenario led to certain number of infections and deaths, we were able to kind of um, split it by sectors. And then depending upon how much that sector was interdependent with other sectors and how much work could be done by teleworking, you know, um, from home, um, we were able to assess the out, you know, the economic impact on each sector for many of these counterfactual scenarios. So one interesting thing that happened, we decided to homeschool because we didn't really have an option, um, I guess. Right. I don't know if we did, right. but we didn't want to, we wanted to do that. So um, it was, uh, something I didn't want to do at all. I, the first day <laughs> I can tell you the first day of, um, I guess it was March 14th or so. when they closed her, my daughter's school. She's seven. Uh, I was like completely freaked out because I thought I'm never going to be able to get any, I'm not going back to the office. That's clear. And I'm never going to get any work done here. Cause this is crazy with a seven year old running around right. anyway. So I just built this thing on my door uh, that same day. I just did it because I was going crazy. And it basically was a little um, shield that, you know, sound is like water. It travels through cracks and the door had a big crack and it's a wooden floor and it just, everything came in. So I put this thing in there and I got some headphones and my fan in here. And after a couple of days, it wasn't so bad. Right. But what was really nice about it is over time, especially this fall, when we really started to take the homeschool thing seriously, um, I've had the opportunity to, you know, watch my daughter in a way that I would never be able to, an insight into, into a part of her that I never would have had before because you're teaching someone like a teacher. It's really difficult in certain, certain ways, but it's very rewarding, especially when it's your own kid. So that was a high point. And it's kind of a low point too. It came with a lot of uh, uh, hand wringing because you really don't know what the hell you're doing, right? I mean, I'm a psychologist too, and I've I've like run thousands of human subjects and experiments, and you're watching people learn basically. And it's it's still I have no clue how to teach a seven year old. I mean, anyway, that's a high point and a low point. And then work wise, the team that we put together for the the COVID stuff, that's the you know, psychology simulation work. Um, we've added a component. We're largely, um, you know, it's an inter uh, um, institutional kind of thing. 
uh, we're largely psychologists and, comp- and computer scientists and some social scientists. So now we've really added strong NLP component to this group. Um, that's it's a different institution, but they're integrated with the, with our work, com- completely integrated, and, and that's I think going to bear fruit at a later point in time. Um, and it's really fun, and I've learned quite a bit. And I, I think there's also this work-life balance thing that I've, I've become less balanced because I work a lot more. It's like there's more of an excuse to just work on stuff anytime. You know what I mean? So I think at the end of the day, I'm more productive because at least I've learned, like, instead of chatting with, with you know, Andrew at the coffee shop, going out for a pint with Pronto after work quick, you know, I was, I, I learned how to do Python. I didn't st- use Python before and I had to transfer and I use it all the time now. And I, you know, I wouldn't have, I don't think I would have had that push to do it. So it pushed people to do more and to figure out new ways to entertain themselves, you know, and if, if Python is entertaining, then so be it. (laughs) So, so that actually brings up a really great point, which is uh, the different ways that the team has had to, to interact now. So we used to be able to, have those conversations over a pint at the coffee machine and we would solve problems that way. And we would, you know, challenge people with, and we would learn about each other and make the team stronger. And we don't have that now. So, um, so Atla, what are your thoughts on, on how the team has changed in its interactions? I mean, it has certainly changed. It's, um, it's, it feels very different to be just interacting with everyone just on the screen. Um, um, but I agree with Mark that I, I mean, I feel I have like nothing else to do. All the social obligations are, you know, gone. We don't go nowhere. Nobody comes to our house. So th- there, there's no travel. So there's no other distractions left other than just work, then you say, okay, you might as well work. And then you go back to your computer and you're, you end up like sitting in front of the computer all day long. Sometimes you're productive, sometimes you're not. But I think overall, I would say my productivity is higher being at home. But I don't think, you know, socially, I feel as satisfied <laughs> just being by myself with the computer. I do miss walks, you know, at lunchtime with our colleagues. We used to go walking and, you know, just corridor conversations. So um, I think work-wise, I don't think it has impacted. um, But socially, I think um, it's definitely, you know, a loss, you know, working from home. I mean, it. I'm not complaining. I think it's it has given a lot more flexibility to my schedule as well. So I can take shower any time of the day now, you know, <laughs> and take a walk anytime, you know, I'm not in a meeting. So, the, so there are advantages to it as well. Um, but sometimes, yeah, you feel really isolated. Yeah, I have two comments. One is I wonder about the trajectory of the Institute if this didn't happen versus it did in terms of its scientific trajectory. In my position, I really would like to run into Modoff and Barrett more because they never bother me anyway. I had to go seek them. If I, I mean, Barrett sometimes will walk by and there's nothing you can do about it, <laughs> which is great. But, you know, getting access where it was just easier if you had 
ideas to put things and to get their reaction in person with an idea is a lot different than what I have now, which is harder, you know? So if everybody has, so for some scientific directions that you might've been able to push in person and get a kernel going, maybe some people like Srini and I have been talking about infodemics for a while, you know, that if we were in the same building and it wasn't, you know, I think we'd probably push that further, but where would we be scientifically in our, in terms of our direction uh, and programmatically, would it be different? I mean, not, I'm not saying it, it clearly would because COVID made us do different things, but I just mean, if you can control for that somehow, like, do, do you get more variety if, if you're together or not? Like I have a, partly I have, I have a sense that you would, but at the same time, a lot of those conversations are a waste of time and it's hard to know which ones aren't waste of time, meaning that nothing's going to come out of them in terms of sponsorship. So, um, but the other comment I'll make is I think that the adaptivity of any kind of group when things happen is puts you somewhere interesting. So the confabulations that we do on Fridays, I've gotten to know things about people that I would never have known because I get to know things about people I don't even see normally, even in the office. It's like just to all kind of get to know each other. And uh, so in a sense, you know, I've gotten to know more about people I wouldn't know about and in more depth too. The society where there was high temperature all around and like just balls bouncing around and so we settled in new states that we would not have gone if we had just gone on the same trajectory. <laughs> yeah, and I think like that's a really nice uh, segue to the question that I had, which was uh, you talked about the counterfactual of the scientific trajectory, but like just in terms of the counterfactual of what played out over the last year. So, what are some things that you wish uh, we had known, like maybe tools or know-how? or just uh, how this thing will play out like on day one of the pandemic and uh, what what are some things that looking back hindsight 2020 you would like to highlight i mean it, i personally would have liked to know how long this you know shutdown or social distancing was going to last if i knew it'll be like two years i would have planned my life very differently um but in terms of the, the disease itself, I think it would have helped a lot if we knew early on that there is asymptomatic spread. If we knew it was airborne and we could use um, masks could save life, but that things like that could have been done if we knew it was airborne um, and how infectious it was. You know, we, we didn't know, I think, for a long time that it was that infectious. And then how it affected different aged race and genders. And even now we have very like high level data on that, you know, state level. We don't really know. We know anecdotally, you know, um, that's affecting certain race groups and um, certain age groups. But having detailed data would help, I think, um, find a targeted solution to the problem, which we haven't had the luxury of doing well i think it to, to me this highlighted how fragmented our country is in a sense and i mean it's like fragmented in ways that are in my mind directly related to how we've treated people from you know in terms of um the amount of poor people we have in the country is like astounding for our country and the disparities in wealth and i think that's reflected in the educational system 
I've worked in public city schools in Chicago for a while, a long time ago, doing testing for three years. And, you know, I got to see, and I'm sure other people in the room have had experiences where people, poor people just don't have a chance, right? And the effects of this, when a pandemic comes, it magnifies things like inequalities in, I mean, uh, not inequalities, it magnifies, I mean, I'm just blown away by the amount of people who have take misinformation and just run with it. You know, and I know there's social dynamics and there's things, but we have this thing our populace is not well-educated with respect. Like I don't mean physics and math. I mean like common sense and basic understandings of cause and effect and understanding how government worked. I don't, I think looking back and saying what we should have done is something that is for other people. Cause I don't feel qualified to know. I think it's a really hard problem when you have all the uh, intricacies of governments and governance and social things. Yeah, you highlight two important points. One is the infodemics being so critical or even more important than it, it, it influences academics even more mm-hmm. than what we maybe right. understood it, uh, we viscerally felt it over the last year. And the other thing being, people used to say like, uh, these great, great disasters are uh, big levelers or equalizers, but actually they're amplifiers. Yeah, that's right. Well, what about the future? I mean, that's a, the question was about the past. Now, what's going to happen? What, what are our thoughts about the future? I don't know. Is it like I, th- I expect this to be the roaring 20s again? Like, in a way, there's parallels across the globe in terms of political kinds of things going on with respect to a pandemic that happened in the same year, roughly, as the Spanish flu. And then the 1920s. So, do we expect a stock crash that's really bad? Are the 30s going to be terrible? Are we going to have prohibition soon? But no, seriously, how are we going to prepare for the next one? I, I think Oswald will answer this better than I will. But I think from an economics point of view, people just can't pay to have extra ventilators in their hospital for 20 years in case a pandemic comes, right? Like, how do we deal with the future, Ashwa, from like a serious, from an economic perspective? Because if we had the money, we'd have ventilators for everybody. And we'd, we'd take bats and try to mutate viruses and, you know, just get ready for the pandemic. But we don't have the, the, the extra money. Yeah, good question. I don't think economists can answer that question. We saw what economics did to Texas Aircourt grid. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's when you leave things to free market and market economy is like, okay, you know, let the price adjust to demand and supply and, um, you know. And uh, you see $16,000 bill in five day usage of electricity because they allowed variable pricing. Again, the poor people had signed up for variable pricing Mm. because uh, most of the time it's pretty cheap, right? It's just (laughs) now when you need it, it's $16,000 bill for five days. Now they're getting hit in the worst possible time. So that's what free market economy does, yeah. Uh. Wow. Yeah, especially I think uh, for the long term, uh, I think I've heard like humans are very bad at thinking long term and thinking long term about complex problems without clear solutions. So we are, we are seeing that playing out not just in pandemic, but climate change and all of the others. I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. And that's why like, I think this interaction between behavior and economics is going to play out in every spatial and social scale that we uh, can imagine. We need, we need to find out what we need to start predicting where this virus is going, right? What the new variation will be, the new mutation of it will be, and then plan ahead in terms of, you know, developing the vaccine for that mutation rather than <laughs> doing what it's current, you know, preparing, protecting against the current uh, version of it. 
and then maybe develop a universal vaccine like they're talking about flu you know like which covers all these multiple strains that um yeah i've been be talking about pilot and what they're looking at yes yeah, so stay tuned it's coming yeah it's it's been fun thank you i appreciate it good to see you astra too i haven't seen you for a while i'm serini i see aaron all the time well thank you for doing it all right we'll see you later okay ciao yeah bye all right that's it for this episode of covid chasers subscribe to us on spotify itunes or wherever you get your podcasts for more information go to our website biocomplexity.virginia.edu forward slash nssacnsac or follow us on twitter at uva underscore nsac stay safe and see you next time on the next episode of COVID chases isn't it amazing right now i mean this is like a triumph of science there are a bunch of changes going on all the time the the virus doesn't really care much about copy editing 